Palmville United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, February 14th, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was a few years ago that I first heard the word parkour on a podcast. Now, it was completely new to me, and uh, being someone who loves all kinds of sports, I was a bit surprised that I hadn't heard about it earlier. The parkour movement was established in France in 1988 by David Bell when he was just 15 years old. Parkour is an intense training discipline that uses movement, which developed from military obstacle course training. And the main goal of parkour is to get from one point to another by jumping, climbing, rolling, vaulting, swinging, crawling, or whatever way possible, and avoiding the obstacles along the way. Now, the extreme sports community and shows like American Ninja Warrior, that's all helped vault parkour into the mainstream. There's even classes for children and youth to help them develop their parkour agility skills. I read a heartwarming article this week about a Palestinian boy whose right leg was amputated below the knee after he was hit uh, by Israeli army fire in 2018. And he uses parkour, even with his uh, amputated leg, to uh, continue to allow his body to move in challenging and rewarding ways. It's truly incredible what our human bodies are capable of, especially when we're pushed to the limits. Welcome to the fifth and final week in our series, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And we've been looking at the amazing bodies that God has blessed us with and and how in our anatomy we're also discovering who God is calling us to be as the church, as followers of Jesus. Now, the majority of credit for this series, of course, goes to Paul Brand and Philip Yancey and their book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. In fact, the book cover that you see right here, it's actually a revised and combined edition along with their follow-up book, The Marvel of Bearing God's Image. And, and, and the five messages that I've crafted in this series, they don't cover all the wonderful insights in this book. So if you've enjoyed this, if it's uh, challenged you and touched you, I encourage you to, to go and pick up the book for yourself and continue reading all the other amazing ways that our bodies are connected to the larger body of Christ. But this week, we are focusing on motion, how our bodies move. And it all begins with muscles. Well, sorry, not these muscles, these muscles. What you see right here is a human body uh, of just our bones, muscles, and tendons. We have 600 muscles comprising 40% of our body's weight. That's twice as heavy as our bones weigh. And, and they burn up much of our energy in order to produce our motion. From the tiny muscles, like the ones that let light into our eyes, to larger muscles, like the diaphragm, that control coughing, breathing, sneezing, laughing, and sighing, to our massive muscles in our thighs and buttocks, which equip our bodies for a lifetime of walking and or running. Now, without muscles, our bones would just collapse into a heap. The joints would slip apart. All movement would cease. Human muscles are divided into three types. There's skeletal or striated muscles. Um, these allow voluntary movements such as running, jumping, or in Dathan's case, piano playing. 
smooth muscles are our involuntary ones which control the automatic processes that happen in our body without even much attention from us. In fact, those muscles that control our eyelids, our breathing, our heartbeat, and our digestion. Then we have our cardiac muscles. Our heart muscles are specialized enough to uh, uh, merit their own category. And then tendons are the things that anchor our muscle to our bones and our joints. It's amazing when you study it that muscles actually rely on an advanced hierarchy to organize the individual cells that head all the way up the chain. Muscle cells, at the very beginning, are long, sleek bodies with dark nuclei, and they perform just one action. They contract. When they contract, they shorten and pull. Muscles cannot push. Cells are then united into strands called fibers, resembling coils of rope, and fibers report to a much further hierarchy called a motor unit group. Now, one motor nerve controls a motor unit group, it wraps its end plates around the muscle group, kind of like an, an octopus would uh, encircle a pole with its tentacles. And when that nerve gives a signal, then all of the muscle fibers immediately become shorter and fatter. Some fibers along the way are called uh, fast twitch, therefore short bursts of energy. Others are uh, slow or long twitch fibers, and they are less quickly fatigued. So let's say uh, weightlifters or sprinters would use more of the fast twitch muscles while endurance runners uh, depend on their slow twitch muscles. Muscle fibers operate on a all or none principle. Right? They, they can't control the level of energy they use. It's, it's simply like an on or an off switch. Each motor unit takes a rest when needed, but the muscle's contraction stays ready in case it's called upon. And rarely will all the motor units in a single muscle fire simultaneously. What's even more interesting is that in it, all the muscular action involves a policy of, of give and take. In fact, muscles are paired antagonistically, meaning that when one contracts, uh, opposite muscles uh, relaxes and, and vice versa. So for example, when the triceps are in use, the biceps then relax. And this is the way that our body uh, machine keeps going so that muscles don't get in the way of the others. Well, in week one, I shared with you Dr. Brand's description of how some cells can dysfunction and rebel against the body, and that turns into cancer. Well, in the same way, there are also dysfunctional muscle groups. And so when someone has a muscle spasm, or worse, a spastic muscle, they often assume that there's something wrong with the muscle, that the muscle is malfunctioning, but actually the muscle is perfectly healthy. It's not diseased at all. In fact, it's well-developed because it gets used so frequently. But the malfunction stems, however, from the muscle's relationship with the rest of the body. It demonstrates its strength at all the wrong times when the body neither needs nor wants it to function. And so, quite simply, the spastic muscle disregards the best needs of the body, and its dysfunction really is closer to mutiny than disease. As with the rest of the series, what we learn about our physical bodies also translates profoundly to our spiritual selves. When we're operating at our best, the muscles of the church as the body of Christ, uh, well, we're engaged in acts of love, healing, feeding, 
educating, working for justice, standing with the poor and the oppressed, telling others about Jesus. These are our Christian muscles of love at work, if you will. Every week we say it, you heard Pastor John mention it so eloquently earlier, that at Palmdale United Methodist Church, we are inspired by Jesus to love. It, it is our reason for being. And while it's a great focus, we also need to be careful. It's, it's not enough to simply do these things, these acts of love, but we as Christ followers need to be doing them at the right times and for the right reasons. Like a muscle spasm, it is possible to perform acts of kindness simply for our own benefit, for our own reputation and, and standing and to, to make ourselves feel good. As, as the saying goes, it's not about you. It's not about us. When we're living out our faith, when we're practicing uh, being the body of Christ, being followers of Jesus, it's not about us. When we go out into the world, even if the world is simply our household and, and a few blocks around in our neighborhood, it's not about us. When we do good in the world, it is not about us. It becomes about us when we do simply what we do because it makes us feel good or important or needed. But that's really, that's just our muscles spasming, the going off on their own, no longer part of the good of the whole. We cannot find true fulfillment by demonstrating our individual strength uh, as a muscle unit in Christ's body, that all of what we do has to be for the larger good of the whole. Dr. Brand writes, if we loyally serve Christ and applause or even fame results, well, we will need special grace to handle it. But if we consciously seek applause or fame or wealth for whatever end result, the effect will be like the spastic contraction of a once healthy muscle. You see, movement in the body of Christ, friends, requires a willing cooperation from the many parts who gladly submit their strength to the will of the head. And of course, the head of the church is Christ. And as pressive as individual acts of love may be, if they're not done out of submission to God's will for our lives, then in all honesty, they're really not worth that much. Now, let's go a bit deeper into the hierarchy of human motion. I found this a fascinating section of Dr. Brand's book. The most important unit in communication inside the human body, you may be surprised to learn, is the neuron. We have 12 billion neurons that are poised for action when we're born. Now, every other cell in our body dies away and is replaced every few years, but not the neuron. By unanimous decree of medical specialists, the neuron has been declared the most significant interesting cell in the entire human body. Its network of chemical messages form the basis for all our thought, movement, and behavior. So the neuron begins with a maze of incredibly thin, lacy extensions called dendrites, which, like uh, the foot hairs of a tree, they funnel to a single shaft. And if you asked a surgeon, she would tell you that uh, they never encounter a neuron standing alone. In fact, there are hundreds, perhaps thousands, of neurons joined together in rope-like strands, leading to thicker cables finely connected to the spinal cord itself. Now, in the body, each of our 12 billion neurons stop just short of its neighboring neurons. In fact, it, per, it leaves this precise gap called a synapse. 
and the synapse allows for some staggering complexity in our bodies. Along the length of one nerve cell, at thousands of separate points, synapses form as neurons come within close proximity of other cells. And then a large motor nerve may have 10,000 synapses, while a brain neuron may have as many as 80,000 synapses. And if a signal then stimulates the motor nerve into action, immediately thousands of other nerve cells in the vicinity are put on high alert. Now, the very highest of all uh, the nervous system is our cerebral hemispheres in the brain. Dr. Brand calls the brain the holy of holies of the body. It's the organ that's most protected by bone and most vulnerable to injury if that protection is ever breached. In our brains, there are 10 billion nerve cells and 100 billion glial cells, which are sort of like uh, the batteries for our brain activity. They all float together in this jellied mass, sifting through information, sorting memories, storing them, creating consciousness. It's our brain where we get our impulses from everything from uh, evil to rage to purity and love. So, that's the basic hierarchy, right? Neat and orderly, isn't it? Right? We go from neuron to synapse to reflex to brain. But there's one more part of it that I haven't mentioned, and that's the human will. The will is basically what controls our muscles and our movement. And despite what you might think, the will does not reside in our brain. No. Guess where it resides? In that humble, single nerve cell known as a neuron, the one that controls the muscle fibers. Sir Charles Sherrington discovered this surprising fact about neurons and called them the final common path. You see, the cell body of this neuron receives a spray of impulses from surrounding nerve centers. It stays alert to muscle tension, the presence of pain, the action of opposing muscles, the degree of strength required for any given activity, the frequency of stimuli, the amount of oxygen available to us, our body's temperature, the fatigue factor, all of these things. And then orders from the, the brain flood in, right? Lift your arm, the box is heavy, so be ready to enlist a squadron of motor units. But after all the signals have been accumulated in a, a giant contradictory pool of advice and, re and recommendations, the motor neuron itself, down in the spinal cord, decides whether or not to contract or relax. It is, after all, the best uh, equipped for such a decision because it is in such intimate contact with thousands of local synapses as well as the brain. It's, it's truly amazing. Right, so now we've figured out this sequential hierarchy of the body. It all comes down to the simple fact that the neuron does what it thinks is best. Right? Only the final common path can decide between incompatible commands and reflexes and we actually should be glad for this. Dr. Brand uses this example. He says, if I walk barefoot and step on a thorn, my foot will stop mid-step and pull itself back even before the pain registers in my brain. But if I were escaping a burning plane, my cells would know that the brain was calling on them to bear some unusual stresses to prevent much more traumatic experience. I could then step on a flaming shard of metal because the normal reflex would be short-circuited for the sake of a more pressing goal, which is to escape. The nervous system's hierarchy 
serves my sense of survival. Sometimes my brain overrules, sometimes it delegates, but always the results of its orders depend on the local autonomous cell, the neuron, the final common path. Which brings us, at last, my brothers and sisters, to our final connection as the church, as the body of Christ. What better analogy is there to this network of communication within our anatomy and the network of communication that we have as believers, as Christians, as followers of Jesus? You see, all of us, as individual members of the body of Christ, we have declared our allegiance to the head, to Christ Jesus. But God, with his deep and implicit regard for freedom, has actually left the final choice of action to us. As individuals, you might say we are God's neurons. We are fully independent as the final common path. Each of us can choose by our own free will how we're going to be act without being forced by God in any direction. But just as our bodies form a network of interconnected impulses and information, each of us is vitally important for in, in order for our neurons to make the final decision on how we act. So, we are just millions of neurons connected to motor units in Christ's body. What do we do? Do we do harm? Do we do good? How do we get our guidance? Is there some higher impulse that would help supersede a lower impulse? Well, you don't have to have been a Christian for very long to know that God doesn't always give us those audible directions on how we are to live our lives. Very few of us, like Moses, had those burning bush experiences where God speaks so clearly that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt what it is that God wants us to do. It does happen from time to time, but in my experience, those burning bush experiences have come through other people in the body of Christ, individuals that have helped encourage me and give me a sense in my spirit what the confirmation is for what God is calling me to do. The United Methodist Church got its name uh, from John Wesley's organized methods of making individuals responsible and accountable to one another. In the 18th century England, small groups of Methodists called class meetings would gather together on a weekly basis, and the first question they would ask each other is, how is it with your soul? Like, how are you doing? Where are you struggling where are you rejoicing and celebrating? How can we come alongside you and support you as you live out your faith? What temptations have you been going through? How did you grow spiritually this week? What can we be praying about with you? I mean, the early Methodists took very seriously the chain of command which, as Christ's body uh, in our physical bodies, exists uh, horizontally as well as vertically. And I think I got those mixed up, but, you know, with one another and with God as well. We also have the Bible, of course, right? This instruction, guidance, advice, encouragement, admonition, all bound together in one place. I agree with Dr. Brand when he said that most of what God has to say to us is already written in the Bible, and the onus is on us to diligently study God's will that's revealed there. It, it, we have this amazing resource at our fingertips, friends. How can we not, as followers of Jesus, be spending time reading the Bible on a regular basis? That's why I talk about so frequently how important scripture journaling is, 
not only into the life of this church, but into, into each one of our lives as well. And, and in addition to our Monday and Tuesday scripture journaling groups that we have online, I've made it a point that every staff meeting, every ad council, every finance team, and other ministries in our church here, we always start with scripture journaling. We start by reading a passage and then asking, well, where was your spirit stirred? And what might that be saying about God, about life, about faith? And then how does that connect to your own life? Reading the Bible, not just for information, but for transformation. That's so central in opening our spirit up to hearing whatever it is that God's spirit wants to say to us. The Apostle Paul reminds us, in his uh, letter to the church in Rome, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This past week in a small group, we were talking about this very passage, and one person had an insight that uh, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice is what uh, our, our first responders and our medical personnel do on a daily basis. And that's so true, but really anything that we do on behalf of love is using our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then Paul says, don't forget to keep renewing your minds, and, and spending time in Scripture is a wonderful way to begin to do that. John Wesley also said that when we want to discern God's will for our lives and how we should be moving forward, we start with Scripture. That has to be the primary foundation for any decision. But then we also turn to tradition. What has the church said about this topic or issue over the years? But then also our own personal experience. What have we come to know and learn and believe about life and, and love and ourselves over the years that we have lived? And then finally, reason. Use the brain with all the neurons and the synapses that God has given us uh, to help make decisions. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And oftentimes that comes through the, the, the fellowship and sharing of one another in faith. And all of that gives us a sense what God's calling us to do. But remember, of course, that each of us, like the individual neurons in our bodies, we too have direct access to the brain, to God himself. That God doesn't just leave us to figure things out on our own, but God loves us and wants to guide us and direct us towards the paths, paths that are best for us, our families, and our communities. In the very last chapter of his book, Dr. Brand asks this wonderful question, is God's plan to possess the earth through a body composed of frail humans really adequate in light of the sheer enormity of the world's problems? It's a great question, and, and to put it in another way, no one's perfect, especially the church, and then God knows that we as God's followers have made tons of mistakes over the centuries. We've even done things in the name of God that God is like, please, don't use my name in vain. <laughs> I had nothing to do with that. So are we, as the body of Christ, really up to the task? Well, you know, Jesus came to this earth to teach us how to live, to love, to relate with one another, and it ended up costing him his life. 
The Bible tells us that after his resurrection, he ascended back to heaven to be with God the Father. And what he left on earth in that early church that you can read about in the book of Acts was a faltering, bumbling community of followers that had largely forsaken him when he needed them most at the time of his death. They were the ones that Jesus left to reach an unbelieving world. And now we are inheritors of that same calling. Go figure. Jesus never wrote a book, never made a doctrinal statement or, or a system of thought. Instead, he left a visible community to embody him and represent, represent him to the world. The metaphor of the body of Christ could arise only after Jesus had left the earth. And Paul, who coined the phrase in his letters, never once said that the people of God are like the body of Christ. No, every place that he wrote about it, he said that we are the body of Christ. God's Holy Spirit has come to dwell among us, and now the world knows an invisible God mainly because of our representation of him through our very uh, frail and uh, less than perfect human bodies. After World War II, a group of German students volunteered to help rebuild a cathedral in England that had been bombed out by their countrymen during the war. As the work progressed, debate broke out on how to best restore this large statue of Jesus with his arms stretched out, bearing the inscription, come unto me. Well, careful patching enabled them to repair all the damage except for the hands, which had been just obliterated by bomb fragments. So how should they attempt to this delicate task of, of reshaping the hands? Should they add new materials for the part that they, they could not even find, the, the, the pieces they couldn't find anymore? Finally, the workers decided that they were going to do something else. And their decision still stands to this day. They left the statue just like that with no hands. But they added an inscription at the bottom, which says, Christ has no hands but ours. Paul put it this way when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, in him, in Jesus, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. That's us, friends. That's our bodies and all of their uh, frailty and foibles. That we are a spiritual dwelling place for God. Our hands, our feet, our hearts, our minds, even our neurons. For we are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.